we tell the entrepreneur what we heard. As, a, as my dad used to say, it doesn't matter what I say, it matters what they heard. And now, it's time once again for the show that gives glorious voice to 25 million business owners across the fruited plain. Radio Free Enterprise with Frank Felker. Hello, hello, hello. Yes, indeed, I am Frank Felker. Welcome back to Radio Free Enterprise. Regular listeners of the show know that human communication is a great passion of mine, that I really try to help people do a better job of understanding each other. And my number one focus is in marketing communication, helping people to communicate the value proposition and the benefits and features and functions of their products and services to their target market. But another area that's a big, big deal for me is public speaking. This is something a lot of people say that they fear worse than death. And I've done a great deal of public speaking. I've uh, spoken all across the country. I've spoken, I guess, scores of times. I've spoken in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and I've spoken in Dusseldorf, Germany. And I've spoken, the largest group of people I ever spoke to was 1,200 people in a ballroom at the Paris Hotel in Las Vegas. And recently spoke to a really tough room. It was a high school class in Fairfax, Virginia. I tell you, that's a tough room. That's a tough room. But um, of all of the presentations that I've ever made, I want to throw one more thing in there, another very tough room, the Opera Hall at the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. I twice emceed there for Fourth of July celebrations. So when I tell you that when I'm about to tell you about a tough room and a tough place to present, you'll know I know what I'm talking about. The toughest presentations I've ever made were investor presentations, pitch meetings, where I was trying to convince professional investors with millions of dollars to invest, that they should put some of that money in my company. And I've since then, uh, since I had the uh, the opportunity to do a lot of those pitch meetings uh, back in the late 90s and early 2000s, I've had the opportunity to watch a lot of other entrepreneurs uh, give their pitches. And I would say to you, and this is from my passion for communication, that I believe that Making an investor presentation and the, and the two parties to it is perhaps one of the most challenging communication processes that human beings ever encounter. And so today, I want to help everyone do a better job with that. And I'm very pleased and we're all very blessed to have an expert at this topic join us today. Roger London, welcome to Radio Free Enterprise. Thank you, Frank. Pleasure to be here. Roger is a serial entrepreneur. He's an angel investor. He was formerly an actual uh, corporate venture capitalist, if you will, for Nokia uh, previously in his career. And he's seen a lot of investor presentations. He's seen a lot of pitches made by entrepreneurs. And he's going to share his wisdom and experience with us today. So, Roger, I want to I start with this. Uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, I think that this is literally, and maybe people think I'm crazy by saying this, but there are not many excuse me, communication uh, experiences or challenges that I've ever faced that were more challenging for me personally than trying to pitch an investor. 
And I think a big part of the reason there's such a huge chasm between the two parties to the conversation is because the entrepreneur doesn't really understand what it is that the investor wants to hear from him. And at the same time, while the investor is very experienced in these things, he doesn't really know what the heck this particular entrepreneur is trying to tell him. And so what would your reaction be to that, that this is such a, an extremely challenging environment? Would you agree with that? But well, certainly true. I, I think the uh, uh, it's more true of the former than the latter. The the investors know that um, the entrepreneurs may not be tuned to uh, uh, to speak their language. So uh, the the uh, uh, the entrepreneur needs to understand that the investor is not going to be emotionally invested as uh, as the entrepreneur is. Um, and that we're just keeping a mental checklist of the red flags versus the green flags. Um, it, ideally, it would be great if they could do a dry run with an investor. I'm a, I'm a member of a couple of angel groups, and one of them, Baltimore Angels in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, we have investors uh, who are willing to sit with an entrepreneur prior to pitching to the group. And... Um, we tell the entrepreneur what we heard as a, as my dad used to say, it doesn't matter what I say. It matters what they heard. <laughs> That's great. So, that. so that is the challenge and, and trying to understand what is important to the investor is really a key to a good pitch. That's great. And and that's exactly what I'm hoping we will be able to uh, reveal a little bit of here in, right. uh, in our interview today. So, Let's start with this, and because before the uh, entrepreneur ever gets a chance to get in front of uh, an investor or an angel investor, a venture capitalist, they have to they have to meet them. They have to get them to agree to listen to their pitch. What would you say is the best way for an entrepreneur to approach or get the opportunity to meet an angel or a venture capitalist? So a warm handoff uh, is best, and by that I mean a. Uh, um, that a, a lawyer or the incubator manager or an accountant or serial entrepreneur or someone who the investor has uh, at least some working relationship with uh, makes the referral. It, uh, if the deal comes out of left field to the investor, the odds are pretty low that it's going to get much vis visibility. Um, if the entrepreneur doesn't know any of these kinds of people, then this is going to be the first sale that, that they're going to have to make. You know, every entrepreneur has to make uh, sales. They may not be salespeople, but they have to convince people to come on board. They have to convince um, investors to invest. They have to invest, uh, convince customers to come on. So their very first sale may be getting someone to be that referral source. Um, service providers are the easiest. You know, the, the lawyers and the accountants, they're always looking for new clients. So they'll literally sit and meet with anyone. So <laughs> um, if you can find it, there's always uh, lawyers and accountants and consultants in different um, communities who are looking for entrepreneurs to gain as clients. They'll give you a free first meeting, meet with them, uh, see what kind of uh, investors they have, what kind of value that they can have, and, and maybe they can make a referral for you. Now, would you expect you as the uh, angel investor or, or VC, the your warm handoff person, the service provider, to do a little bit of a little bit of vetting on their own to know what kind of uh, deal or, or or entrepreneur is someone that you're likely to want to speak to, or do you just expect them to make the introduction and don't expect much vetting from them? Um. Uh 
I think that could go either way, but um, the burden is really on the entrepreneur. Um, if if the if the lawyer makes a, a referral, uh, and the entrepreneur looks up that investor and sees that they don't make uh, an early stage investment or they don't invest in this space or you need to have a team first or they have certain criteria, um, it, it's good to, to, to qualify your time. You may want to peel that back and ask the, the lawyer or, or referral source, are you sure because they don't really do deals at, at my stage. Um, it doesn't waste your time and it doesn't waste, it doesn't burn a bridge with the investor because the investor will will not look kindly on you wasting their time. Now, th there is something to be said for sort of seeding the field and, and meeting an investor that maybe they're not ready for you now, but they might be in a little while. Hmm. Um, but um, make sure that, that it's a space that they're interested in, that you show them a clear path and, and you, you recognize that you may not be ready for them at this moment, but you just wanted to get on their radar. That's great. I like that. Sort of warm them up a little bit and uh, and then come back and see them at a later point. Right. Uh, the Many entrepreneurs may not understand that different investors look for different types of deals. This is the kind of thing you were just talking about. They invest in different industries. They're looking for companies that are at different stages of development, people who are looking for different dollar amounts, whether it's Series A, B, C, and so forth. And so, as you just described, it is important for the entrepreneur to sort of suss all that out, or at least to the extent that they can before they meet with you. Is this type of information generally available on your website, or, or where should they go to try to find the answers to those questions? Uh, it, it would be a website. It would be uh, LinkedIn um, um, if the firm or the angel has a, a Facebook page. Um, I'm sure after a little bit of Google um, searching, they can find this, this information. Now, just a quick question for you. You and I met at the Semper Startup event in the fall of 2014. We did. And, and uh, all of the presenters there were uh, vetrepreneurs, uh, former military personnel who have now gone into business. And many of their offerings had to do with uh, national security or, or defense-related uh, uh, products and services. Is that your target market? Is that the vertical that you look at personally? Uh, it is. I prefer things in the security space, mostly cyber uh, or advanced IT. Um, mm -hmm. We see advanced uh, energy solutions that can be used in a uh, in theater or in a military application, which clearly have broad benefit uh, and can be a, a dual purpose. Um, we prefer a, a, a dual use technology, something that can be used in the government space and the private sector. Um, the one trick ponies is challenging, you know, the thousand dollar hammer, so to speak. That's, <laughs> that's tough. Uh, I like that example. Now, again, I just for the uh, elucidation of the uh, entrepreneurs, uh, you stick in this vertical and, and many investors do. Uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong. You do this because this is these are areas where you can bring additional value beyond simply writing a check. That you have a rolodex of connections. That you know how things work. That you understand things like you just described. That it's important to have multiple applications for a given solution and that type of thing. So, is this the the type of reason why a smart investor, at least, sticks sticks to their knitting and stays in a particular lane? 
Yeah, I, I would say that there's dumb money and smart money, and uh, the the dumb money is uh, uh, someone who has enough um, cash uh, or assets that they're willing to do some risk investing, and you know it may be a lawyer, or doctor, or accountant, and they just want to play, uh, and they have some extra money, and they hear about some deal, and they'll invest twenty five or fifty or hundred or whatever the number is, but they can't add much more value than that. Mm-hmm. Um, the smart investor is uh, uh, someone who has a um, subject matter expertise and a Rolodex within a given market and can add more value with relationships or helping to accelerate the uh, uh, the development cycle of a technology or shorten the sales cycle um, to the marketplace. Um, that's what that's what smart money can do. And unfortunately, in my experience, when I was raising money for this dot-com back in the dot-com era, all we got was dumb money. Right. And uh, and so we learned pretty quickly and painfully that money's money's is money is money, but what you really want is more than just money. Uh, we were not getting that. I, I recall also from your presentation at Semper Startup that you said something about you can do a sort of a magic trick that you use the word de-risking to describe so that almost immediately, just by the mere presence of you in a transaction or with a, a business, uh, that you're able to uh, accelerate the value of the company because you make it a less risky investment for whoever brings in the next tranche, the next round. Well, I may not have been talking about me personally, but yes, if you have earlier investors, um it uh, it does de-risk the deal for later investors, providing that those earlier investors uh, are actually smart money and they can contribute. <laughs> um, it does de-risk the, the deal for the next round. Great. Well, I sort of got us off track there. I wanted to kind of go chronologically forward through the uh, process for the entrepreneur. So let me bring us back to that. We were talking about how to uh, get an introduction to a particular investor. We talked about that it would be important to present to somebody who's more likely to be interested in your deal based on your industry, your stage of development, and so forth. Let's say that uh, you uh, somebody does want to speak to you. Prior to an actual meeting with them, would you prefer to receive something like a one-page description of their business uh, with bullet points about their industry, the competitive marketplace, the, how much money they're looking for? Something just very brief, a one-pager that gave you a quick overview. Would that help you make your decision whether to meet with them or not? Not only would it help me decide whether to meet with them or not, but if we do meet, our, our meeting will be at a higher level. Um, because I, once I have that, um, I might even start the meeting with, you know, here you presented me with this uh, and then fire them uh, three or four or five questions because that's what I need to, to have clarified or um, that's what I need to, to peel back a little bit more. Or that's what I don't understand. But, you know, if uh, uh, then they don't have to repeat things that I already have, you know, that I already mm-hmm. have. Mm-hmm. So it maximizes my time in theirs. I appreciate that. I hadn't looked at it that way. And of course, time is such a critical element for everyone here, uh, and particularly for the investor who is uh, getting a lot of requests to meet. Uh, They want to maximize the value of their time. Now, let's say, again, taking this chronologically, that you do choose to meet with a given entrepreneur. What will that meeting look like? I mean, where will it be? How long will it last? 
what happens during the meeting, and what would be a great outcome for the entrepreneur? What would a successful outcome look like for an entrepreneur who has met with you? I'm taking it they're not going to walk out with a check, but <laughs> short of that, yeah. what would be a good outcome? Um, uh, well, you're testing me for my uh, recall, but uh, so it, it'll probably last um, anywhere from 20 minutes to 45 minutes, uh, depending on how well or poorly it goes. Uh, it could take place over the phone. Ideally, like I said earlier, uh, I'd like to have received some basic executive summary. So this, this call or this in-person meeting or Skype um, is, uh, happens at a higher level. Um, at that point, if I have received information, it's, uh, that meeting is really a triage. I, I address the flags. We'll talk about green and red flags in a little bit, but mm -hmm. we'll address the flags, um, talk about the key issues. I'll provide them some feedback. And at the end of this, you know, several things, uh, would happen is that, um, I may recommend that they pitch, uh, one of my uh, uh, angel investor groups, or maybe they pitch another investor that's more suited or a corporate venture group uh, that I know that's better suited. Um, and or I may refer them to a, a needed resource like NIP or a corporate attorney, uh, some subject matter expert in that space. Um, so those would be positive outcomes. I, I And mm -hmm. I would... Uh, I'd be so bold to say that a positive outcome could be the cold, hard truth that I tell them that they should move on. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, they may not see that as a, as a positive outcome, but in the long run, it probably well, I, would I, be. I've had some pretty good discussions with other angels about this. And, you know, angels say, we don't want to discourage the entrepreneur. And I say, I agree. I don't want to discourage the entrepreneur, but I'd rather save their marriage. I'd rather them get, take a second mortgage out on their house. And they can be an entrepreneur in another deal that has a lot more viability. But this thing is a dog. We should take it out back and shoot it. And, you know, you don't tell them that you don't say it like that. You realize that this is their baby and they have a great deal of pride in it. But um, if, if, if it's not, you know, if it really is an uphill battle, they need to know that. Yes, I agree. And uh, it's part of this whole uh, uh, communication challenge that I see is that in their mind, they see it as this great opportunity. It's a sure home run. It's this and that. But sometimes we just need a big cold water splash in the <laughs> face of reality. Uh, well, you've heard it, the expression that everybody thinks their baby is beautiful, right? And yes, that right. clearly right. can't be true. <laughs> Absolutely. I, uh, I had an experience when I was pitching a particular small venture fund. I'd flown a thousand miles to meet with a guy who was the CEO and chairman of a billion dollar top line NYSE traded company. This guy was a big deal. I wasn't five minutes into my pitch. He says, hold it right there. He says, I got to tell you, I don't understand what the hell you're trying to tell me. <laughs> I was like, uh-oh. Yep. And so before I could even figure out what to say next, he says, let me tell you what I think you're trying to tell me. I said, okay, that'll give me time to think. And uh, so then he told me what it was exactly. Yeah, I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to tell you. He says, we don't want that. Yeah. Thanks for coming. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, it was you good. It was short. Over the phone and avoided the thousand mile trip. Yeah, I don't know why that didn't happen. But anyway, so these things do happen out there, entrepreneurs. And uh, don't take it personally. It's only business. Okay, so let's say during the meeting, 
uh, you know, and people just want to run on and keep talking. They feel as though if I just keep talking, he'll understand and he'll want to invest. How much time should they be prepared to speak? And how should they divide up the time between talking and answering questions? Uh, I'll just say one more time. And again, this is all for the benefit of the entrepreneurs. People put this huge PowerPoint together and they, oh, and there's, you know, 500 words on every slide and there's 500 slides. Um, and that's just never going to work. What would you say is, is the best number of minutes and number of slides that you'd like to see before you tell them the same thing the guy told me? Hold it right there. I've got a few questions or it's time for you to go. So I think that they should uh, practice a 10 to 15 minute pitch um, and they should practice. Um, they should practice in front of the mirror. They should make sure that they don't pace, that they don't say um a lot. Um, <laughs> as I said, <laughs> uh, and uh, they should be prepared for interruption. So they should actually pitch to some people. Uh, I have ADD and there's a lot of ADD investors like me that if I start hearing things I don't care about or if they say something that troubles me or, or uh, I question, I, I'm going to interrupt them. So they need to be prepared for that. The, the pitch should be really crisp. You know, I always use the three C's, uh, clear, concise and compelling. Um, that's how you should write and that's how you should speak. Um, and they have to remember that they can't cover everything in the first pitch. That's what due diligence is for. The, the, the purpose of the first pitch is to get me interested and get a second meeting. So, mm. so that they have to keep that goal in mind. Their goal in mind is not to get a check. They won't. Their goal and their goal is to, to have a, a follow-up meeting. So regarding the, the death by PowerPoint, uh, they, they probably shouldn't have more than 10 slides. The slides should be more uh, pictures and graphics than text. You mm -hmm. know, maybe a handful of bullets. Um, that each bullet should be more than no more than one line. Um, and uh, they should have one or two points that they want to make per slide. So the more text that you put on the screen, the less the uh, investor is listening because they're reading. So you want the picture or the graphic to um, illustrate the point that you're trying to make, and the couple of the couple of bullet points are are really uh, they map to the point. They're really pointers to the point. Uh, so uh, if if you want to make if the point of one slide is to show that you have customer traction. Just show, uh, you know, the logo of that customer and, you know, a couple of faces of the customer or, um, you know, it's a $2 million deal over five years or you have an LOI or just something short and clean because that's what that imagery is what I'm going to remember. And mm -hmm. and finally, I'd say uh, don't don't bury the headline. Right. Entrepreneurs mm -hmm. do that all the time. What, and what do you mean by that? So. um so if the product is demoable, if it's a, a product that has some visual value, rather than try to paint a visual, a verbal picture describing a web app or a medical device or some visual analytics tool, show the damn tool. <laughs> uh, I mean, I can't, I was at a, I, I listened to a pitch the other day about somebody that was doing a, a mobile app and they were telling me all about it. And 10 minutes in, they said, here, let me show you. 
And I'm like, why the hell didn't you start with this? A, because I would understand a lot quicker what they what it is, right? And and B, it shows me that they have it and it's not SlideShare. A big fear of, of investors is that this thing is vaporware. So if if they have something to show, show it. And if they don't have a product yet that they can show or pass around or demonstrate, then at least screenshots of it that show the benefits and what it'll look like uh, if it's not demoable. Demoable. Right. right. Uh, mm-hmm. um, that makes a lot of sense. You know, there was a, a, a presenter at the Semper Startup. I won't even go into exactly what their product was, but it, it was a similar thing. He stood up there for quite a period of time and he talked about this and that and the other thing. And I couldn't really understand what the product was and uh, nobody could. And so, but then finally somebody said, well, what do you need the money for? And he says, oh, well, we have a $2 million contract with Marriott (laughs) that we can't get enough product to them on time. And so we've got to ramp up production. And you talk about burying the headline. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, we, we care about traction in the team. So if you have traction... Or, you know, sometimes you'll hear that the, you know, the team was, uh, has been in some other startup that raised capital, but had a great exit. And you don't hear about that till the eighth slide when they talk about the team. Mm-hmm. That's, that's Barry in the headline. And in terms of those slides, so I imagine you, there should be one, you know, whatever the product or the service is. And then what else? Who the target market is, the competitor? What, what sort of slides do you want to see? So I need to know quickly what it is. So Hmm. you either show it to me or or show me screenshots of it or show me some visuals of of what it is so that I have context uh, for the meeting. Um, It would be great if I could see a status um, right in the beginning of here's uh, our status for IP, here's our status for the team, here's how much money we've raised, if any, here's how much money we've put into it, here's what generation the tool is, here's what, uh, you know, and all of these in very short bullets, but I can see bam, 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 bam. Okay, I have a frame of reference of where you are and what you are. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk. That's great. Very well put. Excellent. Uh, it, you know, it would, of course, then... Um, a lot of times the entrepreneurs spend a great deal of time on the the size of the market and it's really a 10 or 15 second spiel, right? I mean, uh, I, entrepreneurs spend two or three slides in three minutes talking about the cybersecurity market. I know that. <laughs> okay, so uh, so just say this is for cyber and da-da-da-da-da. Great, I got gotcha. you. That's great. Uh, yeah. So, you know, something that I ran up against uh, when I was out there, and again, this was during the dot-com era, uh, and things, you know, everybody was trying to convince themselves that all uh, laws of economics had been suspended, at least temporarily, and there was a new economy, and that profits be damned, you know, we just got to go, go, go. And uh, so there was a problem. I had a problem with that because I had run a small business for a long time. And to me, it's, you know, it's nuts and bolts and turn on a profit and satisfying customers. And it was I, to me, I just had, had more of a real, in my opinion, a real business sense rather than, I guess I should say, from my perspective. But what a lot of the investors that I spoke to are prospective investors who indeed were not smart money, as I have alluded to in previous interviews that I've done. And it was a big problem for me. 
I was talking to the wrong people, but they wanted some big moonshot story about how we're going to take over the world and we're going to do it, you know, in the next six months. But at the same time, even though for after the dot-com uh, bust, the new economy had been, uh, uh, people are, are disabused of that notion, it seems as though there's still an element where the entrepreneur has to present both a real business story and a moonshot potential future. How can the entrepreneur kind of balance and thread the needle between those two uh, extremes to give you a story, Roger, that is exciting and shows a lot of potential, but at the same time, it's it's believable? So there were a couple of questions in there. One is um, everybody thinks that they're going to be the next Uber or Facebook, which again, clearly can't be true. But um, for me personally, um, I don't, if someone presents that they are going to be the next moonshot, um, I become a little more jaded uh, because the, the odds are just that that's not going to be the case, right? And <laughs> there's a lot of investors like me who have nothing against singles and doubles and triples. We don't always have to hit home runs or grand slams. And especially with the, the moonshots or the, uh, the grand slams, it's tougher on the angels because unless we get a really huge position early, we get crammed down so much in these large deals that, mm. you know, we don't make so much. So from an angel's perspective and from my perspective personally, um, I would rather hear uh, a company talking about, you know, getting a X number of users and X amount of revenue over a couple of years that is uh, a, a hockey stick, not necessarily a right angle, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be that straight shot up. And, and if they're building a unicorn, um, it, it seems like the, the trend, uh, the common thread of those unicorns is that they have to have an incredible ramp of users and adoption. So in lieu of revenue and profits, there is value in an incredible usage and stickiness. So if the hockey stick is in usage and stickiness, those are things that become monetizable, uh, maybe not in the form of revenue, but in the form of an acquisition. So, um, you know, makes I, sense. I, I always look for the revenue. Uh, I just don't understand the usage and stickiness as well as others might. Uh, but th that that has a value that that has a value. You know, it sounds like this may well tie back to the earlier question or, or points about that different investors look for different types of deals. Absolutely. And I'm, you know, I'm a very East Coast investor. Um, um, uh, and New York and Boston, they, <clears throat> excuse me, they have, uh, there's a lot of those that have more West Coast uh, mentalities as well. So I'm a, I'm, I'm more of an old school uh, uh, East Coast investor. Uh, so I, I like deals that are de-risked and I like deals. I, I'm not looking for the grand slam. I'm looking for singles and doubles, well, doubles and triples. <laughs> uh -huh. but, uh, um, uh, but there are the investors that are, you know, that are looking for those moonshots. And, you know, that's the, that's, that's one of the differences with, with me and them. That's great. Thank you for that. I think uh, for me, it would have been, that would have been a very beneficial thing to have known uh, 15 years ago for me, but it's too late for me, but maybe. Too late. 
<laughs> somebody listening today. So I, we could just talk about this forever, and I, I really appreciate you sharing your time and your experience with us. Uh, but we can't go on forever, unfortunately. So I, I want to wrap up with something you talked about at the, the Semper Startup presentation that I thought was just so spot on, which had to do with red flags and green lights uh, that you see when you see somebody doing a presentation. For example, a moment ago, you talked about somebody's talking about they're going to be the next Uber. That would that would get you a little ginchy. What, what are some of the top uh, red flags and then some of the best green lights that you look for? Sure. So um, a, a lot of times, and this is more my, maybe more my um, methodology, but in the initial conversations, you're looking for reasons not to do a deal. Hmm. You're, you're looking for these red flags because you want to spend more time on the ones that you green light. And so the quicker you can, can identify that this one has problems, the, the better. So some of the classics are that you see in the marketing projections that they grow because they get a certain percentage of the marketplace. They get 1% this year and 2% the next year and three, or they say, all we need to do is get 5% of the marketplace and it's a $10 billion you know, market. So, so look how big our, our revenue would be. Um, that, that tells me that they don't really understand how to acquire customers, that they're using pure math in a spreadsheet and they're guessing at what the percentage of the marketplace is going to be that they interesting. Another would be as if they come up with an unreal capital raise or valuation, you know, you can't, uh, you can't come at me with a valuation that assumes you've already had the investment. So they say, well, if we, you know, we've got a $5 million valuation because with your money, we'll do this and this and this. And then in two years, we'll have this much revenue will be worth $5 million. Right. Mm -hmm. You're not now and you don't have that money now. So what is the value without our money? And, and, or they may say, well, you know, we're going to do this. And then in six months, we're going to raise $28 million and, <laughs> you know, for 2% of the company. And so those kind of unreal raises or valuations are huge red flags. That uh, makes sense. Now, Dave, I have to interrupt. Do you sometimes try to help guide people towards a specific uh, valuation? And I can see where they might think, well, that's a very self-serving thing for them to do. Of course, they want to buy it at $5 million post money or whatever it is. But is that something that you feel comfortable or feel is appropriate for you to say to the entrepreneur that this is where your valuation should be? Uh, absolutely. And I, and I would say as an angel investor, many of us uh, invest with convertible notes so that we don't have to get into that argument mm. about valuation. Convertible note is where we we uh, invest and it's it's a an investment where they'll likely raise another round of capital after us. And it's likely a, a capital like a Series A where there would be a valuation. And so we'll, we'll agree that the, the, our stock will be valued at the next round's valuation with some discount. So that gave us our, our uh, risk. That's great. And then you're literally letting the market decide what the exactly. valuation is. And we don't have to argue about it now. <laughs> uh, some other red flags that come to mind are uh, that the use of proceeds goes to a lot of salaries. And, um, you know, this suggests that they don't have much skin in the game. You know, we always ask how much money, how much cash have they put in? If they say we've, 
you know, we've deferred salary of $150,000 over the past two years. Well, hell, I've deferred salary on millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. But you can't you can't count that. That's that's called equity. Right. Mm -hmm. That's called sweat equity. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of companies. Uh, another red flag is that they have a low build to buzz ratio. But we they're entrepreneur of the year and their incubator company of the year. And they got this award and they got that award. And it seems like they're spending all their time going around doing these showcases and and competitions. And they won all these things, but they don't they don't get any customers. Right. Or they don't raise any capital or. Wow. So I'd much rather have a high build to buzz ratio than a low build to buzz. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of red flags. I'll just throw in more out that it, that's the team. Um, the, uh, the entrepreneurs might be an engineer and they think that they could be the CEO. And I disagree. <laughs> or um, they, you know, the, the team that they have is uh, all of their friends or it's other engineers and they've got no business operators or no salespeople and they don't have any, any plan to include them anytime in the near future. So um, that's also a red flag. Sure. sure. Well, we're just running out of time here, but if you could, what are a couple of green, green flags or green lights that you see? Sure. Uh, the primary green light is an absence of red flags. Nice. Um, that uh, and I'd say that the that there's team success that people on the the uh, the management team have done something. Uh, even like if it's a CTO that they've built a product that has raised money before and has gone to market and has done well, even though they didn't do the sales of that, they built something that the market loved. Mm -hmm. um, so team successes in sales, in development, in operations. Um, and then market confirmation. Uh, uh, entrepreneurs frequently build in a silo and they don't have any input as to whether the market will like what they're building. So if they build a, an MVP, a minimum viable product, and they build it with customer feedback, and then they go back and they modify that MVP, that kind of loop um, provides me a lot of comfort that they're building something that the market's requesting and not something that they think the market wants. That's great. Yeah. It, it, nothing like validation by actual customers. Yeah, I want this. I like this. I will pay for this. That's what it's all about. Yeah, right. Who would have thought of it? Yeah. Well, Roger, I thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to us and share your experience with us here today on Radio Free Enterprise. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Roger London, and thank you for listening. Now, what we need to do now is you need to go to the iTunes store and subscribe to the Radio Free Enterprise podcast. While you're there, maybe you'll leave me a little review. Maybe you'll leave me a little five-star rating. Just saying. After that, come on back to RadioFreeEnterprise.com and register with the site so you can stay on top of all the exciting doings here at RFEHQ. If you promise to do that, I promise to remain your fearless host, Frank Felker. Until next time, I'll see you on the radio. We return you now to the leader of the free enterprise system, broadcasting from the capital of capitalism. Here is Frank Felker in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm.